Welcome to this morning's session of Adelaide Writers' Week. I'm Karen Goldsworthy, and I'll be talking to Delia Faulkner about her new book. A bit of other introductory stuff before we begin. Um, before we begin, firstly and most importantly, there's the acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains. We pay respects to elders, past, present, and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they're of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. On a much more prosaic note, um, another note of caution about COVID precautions. Thank you for attending. Um, I do need to reinforce some key conditions of Writers Week's COVID management plan, which is approved by SA Health. Please maintain social distancing wherever possible, and we strongly encourage the wearing of masks and ask you to follow directions given by the COVID marshals and staff and volunteers. Um, at the end of the session, you'll have a chance to ask questions, and when the session is over, you can purchase books at the book tent, and you'll also be able to uh, get Delia to sign your books. The signing table is over there near the tent. Right. Now to the business part of the morning. Delia Faulkner is the award-winning author of four books. She's published two novels entitled The Service of Clouds and The Lost Thoughts of Soldiers and two non-fiction books. The first of these was the volume on Sydney in New South Publishing series on Australian cities. The second is the book that we're discussing this morning, Signs and Wonders, which came out late last year. Between them, these four books have been shortlisted for national awards across the categories of fiction, non-fiction, innovation, history and biography, including the Miles Franklin Literary Award, the Prime Minister's Literary Awards and the National Biography Awards. <laughs> it's, a, yeah, it's quite an achievement, you're right. Delia's short stories and essays have been widely awarded and anthologised. She has a national and an international reputation as a critic. She won the 2018 Walkley Pascal Award for Arts Criticism with an essay called The Opposite of Glamour, which we'll be talking about in a moment. Delia has also had a long and successful academic career during which she has acted in numerous capacities as part of the national literary infrastructure, not just as a teacher, critic, reviewer and essayist, but also as a member of judging panels for literary awards, as a peer and mentor and board member for assorted literary associations and institutions. Since 2010, she's been a senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Technology, Sydney, including a stretch of maternity leave when she and her partner welcomed their new twins. One commentator has described her book like this. In Signs and Wonders, Faulkner explores how it feels to live as a reader, a writer, a lover of nature and a mother of small children in an era of profound ecological change. Please welcome Delia Faulkner. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be out of the Sydney <laughs> deluge and, and here at Adelaide. It's wonderful. Well, that sort of comes into it. everything we're talking about, the fact that Sydney is virtually underwater as we speak, Delia's home. Um, Delia, I thought we'd begin with the title, which is always okay. a good place to start. Mm -hmm. um, I, as soon as I saw the title, I thought, how wonderful. I was familiar with the phrase signs and wonders, mm -hmm. but I couldn't remember where from. What, what, what was your sense of that phrase, signs and wonders? <laughs> 
Um, well, that's sort of really the beginning of this book because I was... Um, it's a phrase that just popped into my head uh, and then I had to think about what it meant mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, I'm an inveterate walker until about six months ago um, I used to live by the harbour in Sydney. We've, we've moved recently. And I would always sort of go for walks around Woolloomooloo and, and you know, um, around the Domain. Very lucky uh, to have those places to walk. And... Um, I'm, you know, I, I walk around during the day because I have a job that allows me to, to do that. Um, and I realise that I, I kind of look to check that everything's kind of okay in my world. And, you know, I look and see if I can see the swifts at autumn, you know, sort of um, buzzing over the park and kind of coming in around my feet like little warplanes. And, uh, you know, I, I look to see if I can see the microbats at dusk and, mm. and so on. And I was walking down in Woolloomooloo and I looked into the water, which I usually do, to see if I can see, you know, what fish are there. And, you know, there was nothing that day. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was a real moment for me um, where I would normally think, oh, well, you know, the, it's, it's seasonal, it was, you know, there's a lot of seasonal variation in the harbour and, you know, it is a bit strange. I'm not even seeing mullet or anything today or the, you know, little sort of fish that, that sort of buzz, always sort of buzz around the seawall. Um, but, you know... Um, Normally, I sort of wouldn't think too much about it. And um, that day, I just thought, oh, what if there aren't any fish to see? Mm. Uh, <laughs> and I realised that that was um, something that I'd been thinking quite a bit recently. And um, I, I thought, you know, I just... It's the, the profound uncertainty of being in this moment where we know that, uh, you know, there's... That, um, you know, we're bombarded with news about, you know, the fact that there's more CO2 in the air now than, you know, there has been for, you know, 800,000 years. Um, you know, we see those terrible IPCC reports about, um, you know, the, the narrowing um, gap with, in which we have time to... Uh, you know, act on, you know, radical decarbonisation to um, uh, stop the, the, the worst excesses of, of global heating. Um, and so you end up in this situation where you look at something and, um, you know, you're not sure if it's, a, if it's a sign or if it's a wonder. So this phrase just popped into my head and so I had this incredible walk um, for the rest of the day, just muttering that phrase to myself and thinking, this is what it sort of feels like. I, I've, I feel like... Um, you know, when I was in, in um, when I studied Latin at school, uh, which was a great privilege and a wonderful, probably the best subject I ever did for being a, a writer, um, for various reasons. I, you know, we used to learn about the augurs and the, the, you know, how the, you know, how the Romans used to, um, you know, determine the gods' will from the the innards of an ox that had been freshly slaughtered, or from the movement of birds through the sky, or animals out of place. Mm. And I thought, well, actually, I feel like I'm kind of, you know, we used to think, oh, you know, how, how ancient, how unmodern. And I thought, well, I actually feel like that's the kind of situation, um, you know, mm. we're often in now where you, you know, you have those conversations constantly. I saw an, you know, someone said, I saw an echidna uh, in our, you know, in my old neighbourhood where I grew up. And then they say, but I don't know if that's because we're encroaching on their you know, on their, mm. their um, land in the National Park, or if it's a great thing because they're coming back. So I wanted... It really captured for me that sense of um, kind of, uh, you know, radical uncertainty and, and sort of the difficulty of taking our bearings about the, um, about the state of the world, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, from the evidence that, that we see. Because it's associated with the supernatural, really, mm. isn't it, in, in a number of... I mean, I, of course, mm. you know... Did what we do now and Googled it immediately. But before I Googled it, I remember the mm. first time I saw that phrase, mm. 
which was when I was 12 and I was reading mm. T.H. White's The Sword mm. in the Stone. Mm. Mm. And, and um, the young King Arthur, who doesn't mm. know he's King Arthur yet, his guardian, is chatting away drunkenly to a friend. And he says, a, a sword has appeared in a kind of a mm. stone and there have been mm. signs and wonders mm. of no mean mm. might, mm. he says. And mm. that was the, my first, you know. But mm. I, look, I did the Googling thing. Mm. And in Acts, in the New Testament, mm. I found... Mm. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, mm. blood and mm. fire and mm. vapour of a smoke. Mm. <laughs> and I looked this up after I'd read Delia's book, which includes several things about the, the mega fires in mm. New South Wales mm. in 2019, 2020, and mm. thought, well, that fits perfectly. Mm. Um, so it, it also turns up in, apparently, in evangelical Christianity, mm. signs and wonders as, you know, miraculous mm. things that are taken as normal, mm. which is also mm. an idea that feeds into your book. Mm. Um, the subheading of the book is Dispatches from a Time of Beauty and Loss. Mm. I think most of us know the loss. Mm. I would love to hear a bit about the beauty, please. Mm. Um, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I was very... Till, for, till very late in the piece, I was going to call this Dispatches from a Time of Beauty and Terror, uh, and then I felt that that was perhaps, <laughs> you know, going a, a, a touch hard um, and, and sort of reeled it back a bit. But, you know, some of those, you know, I, I, but that's, that's the kind of access I wanted for the book, I guess, was this, you know, that, that I think we are increasingly aware of the, the terrors and um, the potential signs, um, you know, especially this, this is, you know, what um, uh, Amitav Ghosh speaks of as a kind of great derangement, um, you know, we can see the, the world deranging, but um, my, what I wanted to do was also to um, look at, um, you know, what was, what was still beautiful, what was still with us, um, not in a not in a way of, of um, you know. I think there's a lot of um, <laughs> um, speaking, writing at the moment about you know how we can go out into a green forest and feel better. It wasn't kind of about that that sort of beauty. It was more about trying to um, capture um, the detail in things because I thought, look, everything is changing so very, very frequent, so very fast at the moment that I actually just want to capture what it's like. And, you know, the, but the weird thing about the, the phase that we're going through at the moment is that it is so often so intensely beautiful. So, mm. you know, even after the fires, we had these, you know, once the, the smoke had cleared from Sydney, we had these bizarre, gorgeous orange, deep orange sunsets in Sydney for a long time. Mm. And so um, I really wanted to be, not just celebrate that beauty, but be a bit, I suppose, a bit suspicious or wary of it because we kind of know that even in nature beauty is, um, <laughs> you know, is, is um, can be a, a sort of a warning sign as well. And so mm. I felt a little, I suppose I felt a little bit impatient with some of the, the books that were saying, oh, if we, only we could look at a, a, you know, an octopus, we could see how, you know, wonderful and gorgeous and beautiful um, it is. Um, but I wanted to, I, I felt that there was you know, that, that beauty, we're kind of, it's almost like we're in a kind of a Baroque phase of, 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 of climate catastrophe, I think, that, you know, there's so much that looks gorgeous that is very diverting, and so, you know, you open your phone and there's this cavalcade of um, stunning, stunning things, you know, ma mammoths coming out of, you know, coming out of the permafrost and so on, mm. uh, which are very beautiful, but, you know, are they also trying to tell us something um, in, this, in, in this distraction, this, inc this inc beautiful distraction that we're often seeing through our screens. So mm. it was quite a, quite a few things I wanted to do around that idea of, of, of beauty. Now you mentioned the mammoths coming, mammoths mm. coming out of the permafrost, which is 
you know, a point at which I was going to talk about this later, but since you've brought it up, um, a book came out right at the very beginning of the um, COVID era, which meant, of course, that the writer had written it and published it before the mm. COVID mm. arrived. Um, and the, the, uh, the plot, basically, is that there is a pandemic, you know, a new one, a deadly one, and the solution to where this came from turns out to be migratory birds who are spreading it from the dead mammoths and the permafrost, mm. which, of course, have emerged from the mm. permafrost. Mm. So the direct connection mm -hmm. between um, ecological disaster mm. and climate change on the one hand and the pandemic mm. on the other. And I think you mentioned that briefly in one of, one of your essays. Um, mm. I, I also wanted to ask you about the... Um, the ep there's an epigraph from the great photographer Diane Arbus, mm. who said this in 1963. Mm. She said, I want to photograph the considerable mm. ceremonies of our present. Mm. I want to gather them like somebody's grandmother putting up preserves because they will have been so beautiful. And I looked at that, they will have been, so I want to do this because they will have been for ages, mm. thinking, what tense is that? Mm. Mm. You know, is it the future perfect? Is it something more complex? Mm. And, and it struck me that what, that what you seem to be saying there is, mm. I see myself... I look forward to the future and I see myself looking back nostalgically mm. where these mm. things are lost. Is that the kind of encapsulation of what you're yeah, doing? Yeah, um, that just really snagged my attention. Um, I think because Arbus is a you know, the great documenter of the weird and, you know, so weirdly beautiful as well. Um, uh, but yes, I, I, you know, all the way through this book, I kept thinking, am I writing, am I writing a reliquary? Am I writing, um, you know, sort of a warning? Um, and so I wanted to... Again, um, so just 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 like she wanted to capture those preserves, just it's so difficult to stop. It's so difficult to kind of pause in this kind of washing machine uh, of um, of news and of um, you know of, of things sort of flitting through our our screens so so frequently. And I wanted to to um, you know capture you know I also wanted to just just write this in a way where. Um, uh, you know, I could say, well, it's not like we didn't know about this stuff. You know, our politicians particularly like to say, oh, you know, we didn't you know, sort of have any idea that, you know, COVID mm. was going to be, you know, contagious, for example. We didn't kind of see that this damage was, you know, that we, oh, we couldn't have anticipated the floods in Sydney. Huh. Uh, um, and yet, you know, I wanted to write this in a way that was, you know, where I was sort of saying, well, actually, we do know. And we know because of the... Um, we know because of the 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 past and also the future. So one of the things that really um, started this book off for me was um, sitting in also sort of the other beginning, really. I was sitting in a lecture theatre and I was listening to the wonderful uh, environmental historian Tom Griffiths give a lecture on sort of environment, on, you know, on the way, where we're at with environmental history now. And he showed these graphs of the great acceleration. Oh. Uh, and um, so, so the international... Geosphere, Stratosphere program um, put, had put together graphs, 24 graphs of what they call the human dashboard, so of human activity, you know, whether it is, um, you know, the and, and the effects on the planet. So whether that is the increase of CO2 in the atmosphere, whether mm. it's ocean acidification and so on. You can imagine what they are. There's, you know, de deforestation and so forth. There's 24 of them. And you look at our the growth pattern. So as you see these graphs and they start around 1950s so of post-war, they start to go up and they kind of, you know, start to, to, to increase more and more. And then around 1990, they just start to shoot Gosh. upwards, almost yeah. off scale. 
And so that's called, there's always, a, always jargon for something, that's called the hockey stick effect. Okay. Um, so that's exactly what all those graphs look like. But, you know, those graphs stopped, um, they, they actually stopped in 2010. And so you can imagine what, you know, but, but what they say is that basically we've been living in this stable Holocene period um, for, you know, for, for um, um, uh, 12,000 years, um, mm. so 20,000 years, and we've... Um, and that, that um, but what we're seeing is um, as, as we start to put stress on all those systems, you start to hit um, cascading effects. Everything becomes sort of exponential. You hit tipping points. We don't know how many tipping points we've hit. But what we do know is that things start to wobble and go, oh, and that's exactly what we're experiencing right. now. So yeah. we can sort of graph where we got to, but we can't kind of, you know, what we're looking at is the predictably unpredictable. Yeah. And so on the cusp of that, or in the middle, because we don't can't quite know, I wanted to um, write it, it, you know, so I suppose that's the, that's where, that's the kind of the, the knowledge that comes into that quote and the yeah. feeling that comes into that quote is that, um, you know, we, you know, we, we are sort of um, in this period of, um, yeah, predict, sort of predictable unpredictability. Yeah. But, and we know, we know it. But we know it's going to change, yeah. but we don't know how or when or how yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah. I am, um, apropos, you're saying, you know, why politicians, they know why don't they do something. Um, some people think of nature writing as a form of activism, either bearing witness or actively trying to inform and persuade. Do you think of yourself as a writer, as an activist, and indeed as a nature writer at all? Um, no, I think I say in this book that, um, well, yes, I think it's important. Um, and, um, you know, I certainly think there's a place for nature writing, but not, not, you know, not the sort of nature writing that sort of runs around and moons and thrills at things and no, how, how no. gorgeous they are, but, um, you know, that, that kind of might, you know, for t kind of trying to take the temperature of what's, of what's going on. Um, but I think I've said that I, I feel that, you know, as, an, in, as a nature writer, if that's what I am, I don't, I don't know. I think I'm a novelist and a non-fiction writer who's kind of deeply worried about, about this stuff. Yeah. But I think that we're more like the, um, you know, the lyrebirds sort of scratching at the, <laughs> you know, scratching at the leaf litter and hopefully, you know, freshening things up a bit. Um, mm. You know, I don't, I don't know that I would have grander hopes for, for, for my writing than that. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, it can be a bit of a worry if we you know, get too grandiose about what <laughs> what writing can do. Well, that's about, um, yeah, that's a balance to be kept too. You say somewhere else in the book that um, mm. we're inclined, and you actually say, you know, at festivals mm. and, and whatnot, mm. to pat ourselves on the back mm. simply that's for right. writing without thinking mm. enough about what our writing mm. is doing, mm. you know. But, it's um, a, you know, it's an enormous challenge to our imaginations, um, you know, and I guess that's sort of my business is, you know, thinking about... Um, you know how to how to imagine stuff. What the limits of imagination are. What how other other writers imagine. Yeah. So um, yeah, I I wanted to um, kind of again. I thought, look, I have a you know a, a weird but unique skill set, I guess. In that, you know, I do have that academic background. Yeah. Um, you know, so what I wanted to do with this was to again. I thought, look, okay, I reckon you know what I can do within my own limitations is just to think. I, you know, I want to put in the one book what scientists are saying about this stuff, what philosophers are saying, mm. um, you know, how writers, uh, filmmakers are responding to it, how I think that even when we don't seem to be responding to it in our novels or our films, actually there's been some sort of sense of disarrangement there. And, and I wanted to kind of 
point that out, and mm. then I wanted to observe closely. So I kind of figured that was the, that was the stuff that I could do within my <laughs> sort of skill set mm. was kind of try and be across um, all those different yeah. different areas. Yeah, as a scholar, as, um, as much as anything mm. else. Mm. Yeah. Um, you say in the acknowledgements that beginning work on the essay called The Opposite of Glamour was the moment when you first thought that you might be able to write this book. And you've also said that the essay has marked... A, you know, working on that yeah. essay has marked a turn in your writing. It's obviously mm. that particular essay mm. um, very significant mm. for you. Um, and it's the centrepiece, literally, of the book, isn't it? That yeah. you put, it's yeah. well, probably the longest essay and you've put it right yeah. in the middle where it... Um, can you tell us a bit more about... The opposite of glamour? What is the glamour and what is its opposite? Um, well, I was asked to think, um, to give a, give a speech, um, which was a, you know, a great thing in retrospect. Um, very grateful to have been asked to do that. Uh, and it could be on any kind of, you know, writing and environmental topic I liked. Uh, it was the Eleanor Dark um, lectureship. Um, and so, obviously, oh, Ellen yeah. Dark's history, I wanted to, to do a good job yeah. at that. And um, I started thinking, and I thought, oh, I'll just, write, I'll just write an essay, just write a speech about um, what, uh, you know, what is happening to our... What, what, what it feels like and, and what's happening to us when we realise there's a loss of abundance in the world, you know. And you go back and you look at... And I start that essay by talking about Steinbeck's uh, Log from the Sea of Cortez that I'd had this incredible urge to, to read again, which is where, the, 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 you know, they go out and um, he and his friends, um, including the guy who becomes the doc, who's the sort of um, char main character in Canary Row, they go out to collect specimens in the, in the Sea of Cortez in the Gulf of Mexico. And, um, and I was looking back at those books and thinking, you know, how do we... You know, that I had such a longing to read them because... Um, you know, because they harked back to a, a different era of abundance. So I kind of think, mm. I thought through, um, you know, how different writers were now approaching that question of, um, you know, the fact that, that, you know, we have now, you know, killed off about, um, I say we and, and you know, I, I, you know by, by which I mean, you know, um, petrol dependent, you know, yeah. sort of well-off nations have, have been, um, and, and people benefiting those have been, have been doing that. Um, where we've killed off 80% of the, you know, the wildlife in the, in the world. Um, and I got to a certain point with that essay, in that essay, where I started to think about what it meant to write about nature in, a, in, a way, in an accepting, loving, um, concerned sort of way. Um, and you know, there are many writers. I think so many people I know are kind of coming into that space of trying to trying to grapple with this and, and, and write about it. Um, but you know, I also found myself thinking that for every one of these books, um, you know, there was a whole regime, a whole um, you know universe of of books um, and TV shows um, which were about which were about glamour. Which were so so you know um, uh, I was I kept thinking about that word glamour and um, its old Scottish meaning of passing you know putting a spell on someone of, yeah, of which they, yeah yeah which they revive in um, in the vampire series True Blood where they they glamour people and I thought look we are sort of glamoured in some way by um, and and I think you guys would know what I I mean you know all those programs um, Instagram feeds in which um, the world is um, travel magazines um, in which the world is... We're presented with a world that is... There's always some refuge to go to. There's always some place in an infinity pool, you know. There's mm. always... Um, uh, you know, you can always 
zhuzh a house, you can flip it, you can zhuzh yourself, you can make yourself over. And so we have this kind of imaginative regime um, that I think is so incredibly powerful. I think I say in the book, if this, it's probably the thing that will, you know, it may be the thing that, that kills us all, um, yeah. you know, and that I think that, you know, the, 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 you know, you throw your, your, your crumb of a book out into that, that, that world in a way to sort of try and balance that idea of the, the, the universe, of the world as something that's infinitely imaginatively replaceable as well as materially right. replaceable. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so hopefully this is in a way the, you know, that's a, that's the a, opposite of glamour. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting idea, the idea that... Um, things are replaceable in other ways than materially because yes. people don't usually think in those mm. terms but you're right people mm. believe it mm. you know we can always fix this mm. we can always do it. Mm. yeah that's that's a that's a sad way of of looking but as you say mm. the opposite of glamour is to actually face mm. truths yeah. like that rather than mm. reinforce them mm. and, and add to them i guess could i just say karen that i met oh. someone who um was working in a kind of a media you know sort of a think tank in melbourne and they had done a lot of research on the on the sort of imagination around disaster and um they they had sort of tracked things like the fires and flood and this will no doubt happen with the sydney floods and what would happen would it be even if climate change um came into stories early on of of especially around those 19 1919, 1920 bushfires that I write about, um, it took about three days until the narrative changed to resilience oh, and yeah. to overcoming and to renewal. And so that that's, I think, a really, just a really kind of grainy little example of how that, um, you know, those sort of narratives of, of infinite replaceability yeah. um, glamorous in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Same, well, same now in Lismore where they're saying yes. how wonderful that the locals are coming yep. in and pitching in to hire a helicopter yep. and stuff yep. as distinct from we're doing something. Yes. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, apropos, again, I... I um, noticed in the in the essay Signs and Wonders you ask the question and it's almost a rhetorical question really, where is our urgency, our terror, mm. our justified outrage? Mm. Um, it made me wonder how different the answer to that might be mm. if Al Gore had won the presidential election mm. in 2000 as mm. he so very nearly did. Mm. You know, what sort of a world would mm. we be living in now? Mm. Um, it wouldn't be that different mm. but my goodness mm. it would be different. Mm. Um, before I get you to, to read a passage that we, we talked about, I'll just ask one more question about your attitude to your own. You, you've told me that your two favourite essays in the book are the one called Coal mm -hmm. and the one called Birds. What is it that makes them your favourites? Um, oh, I don't know. What, I don't know actually what, what yeah. makes them my favourites. Do, do writers just, have favourite things? Are. They just uh, are. You know? <laughs> no, it's, I mean, um, the, whole, the whole question of, you know, do writers have yeah. favourite things that yeah. they did them or artists, yes. really, any yeah. artist. What's, yeah. your, what's, you know, the nicest photograph mm. you ever took? What's the, yeah. you know? I was just curious about yeah, those um, two because they're so particular. Yeah, well, I think that's it. They are yeah. particular so that I've kind of, you know, I'm someone who, you know, a very reluctant autobiographical writer. I, I don't like to um, write about my own life. But with this book, I realised that actually my life, you know, starts about ten years into the Great Acceleration. And so I thought, what tool do I have? Again, you're always thinking as a reader, just what's in, as a writer, what's in my toolkit? And I thought, well, actually, you know, if I'm going to sort of... These are, you know, we're being haunted by deep time in the form yes. of, of our, you know, our emissions from, you know, the carboniferous forests that we're burning that are coming back and heating our atmosphere. I mean, these are enormous, enormous sort of imaginative... Um, you know, almost unthinkable things that mm. we are that we we are facing, and uh, you know, I thought, well, one yardstick I have is um, you know to just try and and 
you know, every every essay is kind of trying to take a, a facet, you know, to take a, a different sort of um, core sample, I suppose, through the, right. um, you know, through this material. And these ones were, uh, you know, the hard hard ones to write because they were yeah. personal. The Cole essay is about taking my kids to um, Parliament House in Canberra where they're asked to, all children get a little trail garden, they're asked to look for Sean the Prawn, uh, which, spoiler alert, isn't actually a, the remnant of a, the, isn't actually the fossil of a prawn, it's the fossil of a bit of um, a carboniferous fo um, coral garden. It's coral, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, it's also it's, not called Dawn the Prawn, which is a point that's that right. Jimmy makes, you know, it's automatically a boy. Um, and so that's sort of thinking through that, this little, you know, um, this little creature from 350 million years ago that sits in that stairway near where our politicians are making those decisions mm. that are setting us, um, you know, poten potentially setting the world up for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of, of, of alteration of the planet. Um, and I try and spin that that little figure and going with my kids and searching for that that figure yeah. um, out into this history of how weird coal actually is and how obsessed our history in Australia is since Cook came to Australia in a repurposed coal-carrying so, boat, so a Whitby collier. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's a personal one. And, and Birds, again, was the last essay that I wrote in the book and... Um, you know, the last ones are the ones where you're putting off hard stuff, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and that is about, um, you know, my mum passed away uh, uh, two, years, uh, two years ago now and um, it was about my memories of feeding her, uh, fe feeding her birds with her um, in her house where she was for 47 years. And so, and it was thinking through issues of mother, you know, the time of mothers and mm. the time, you know, and, and and how hard it is to think the time of our mothers, you know, yeah. um, especially to imagine that they had a life before us, you know, <laughs> uh, which is kind of, and, and th sort of thinking about how hard it is to think this other stuff, but through birds, and you know, I'm a bird nerd, I just love them, so, um, and so I'm using the, those to, those birds and, and that relationship with my mother to, to, to think through how, you know, sad I feel um, about all this stuff as well, so. So, so I guess they're my favourites because they were hard and yeah. because they were, you know, really I had to dig deep into the into the personal stuff. For, That's for lovely. Those two. I, yeah, the idea that something could be your favourite because you put mm. so much into it, mm. you know. Um, I, I might get you now to read the piece, either the one that we talked to, or something else. If you, you know. <laughs> which would you like me to read, Karen? Make the paragraph. For me. The one in. Right. Okay, okay, I shall. I've got the page <laughs> turned down and everything. Uh, that's not it. Here we go, page 100 and... You would like me to read the from the disappearing paragraph? 69, yeah, yes, now okay. normal. All right. Um, but, or maybe say, you know, give the context. Okay. So oh, this was the essay where I kind of really pushed the boat out. It's one that's had I loved one it. of the I most responses. Yeah. And I thought, actually, I think there's something really weird going on with paragraphs in that they are... Um, you know, those sort of growing up on the Victorian regime, I suppose, of paragraphing where, you know, they each paragraph is, is sort of moves on to the next with just a little paragraph indent and sort of, you know, you, you would have these big sort of sections of writing and then a sort of a... Um, and that build in sort of cadence, especially if you read someone like John Ruskin, and, and then you would have a, a section break and then you would move on to um, a new section. And I noticed that writers like Jenny Offal's Weather would be the book that people would be most familiar with, I think, are often written in these little prose bricks, so a like a paragraph without an indent and then a space and then a little paragraph. Mm. So like, new thought, new thought, new thought, jump, 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 and I 
got very obsessed with why that that might be. Yeah. So um, and it's it's fantastic. So I thought, oh, this is the one where I'm just you know see if I you know just sort of see if I can push this one and see see you know I don't, I don't know, but I'll, I'll float the boat out. Well, I believe and it's you. Had the, it's yeah. the one that yeah, um, it's getting it's had lovely response. Um, uh, so this is from that um, that essay where, where sort of towards the end where I'm trying to account for for what Offal and a number of huge number of other writers writing this way are doing. In our new normal, moments of terror and beauty flash by, one bright and intense thing following the other. Sea slugs that look like David Bowie. University redundancies. Cute animal friendships. The death of a black man at the hands of Minnesota police. A glockenspiel programmed to play Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> In my darker moments, I find myself wondering if what um, Adam Mars Jones identifies as a stylistic tick in Offal's writing is now our general condition. Is the dwindling of our old ecology of paragraphing without being noticed or mourned indicative of a more pervasive loss of executive function in terms of being able to process long historical sequences or even being able to sit patiently in a moment to see how things unfold, skills that our very survival might depend on? Mm. I can't help thinking that our growing taste for short, unmoored paragraphs may point in the longer term to a shift in our emotional regulation after all, Offal's novel isn't unique in its ambiguous, unanchored feelings. Think of television drama, which over the last decade or two has also become emotionally labile and disjointed, from soapy medical dramas punctuated by extreme action, a bomb in the ER, a rapist with Ebola, to dramedies six feet under and so on, which scintillate between tragedy or horror and hilarity. It's hard to know whether to laugh or cry. As we jump from one crisis to the next in this broken world, without the dependable old rhythms of its local climates and seasons to sustain us. Is funny, not funny deadpan becoming our default setting? <laughs> Perhaps as the ice sheets melt and the future truncates, our feelings will also only be able to express themselves like Offal's narrative in erratic but predictable little meltwater pulses. It's wonderful. Well, thank you, David. Thank you. My, my own immediate response from when the first time I read that was that you could, you know, write a whole essay on every uh, piece, every punctuation mark that exists. You know, you easily churn out 5,000 words on the semicolon for a start. I'd um, so be there. Yeah, I'm so such a nerd. I. I would so be there for that book or that lecture <laughs> series. One of, one of the reasons I'm, I was glad you are happy to read that about paragraphs is because it moves us on to another way of thinking um, about mm. the book and that is I want to ask you some questions about your own feelings about yourself as a writer and what mm. writers do. I, mm. I, I spoke to Charlotte Wood here on Monday and she was talking about the teaching of creative writing mm. in universities and she was saying, you know, <coughs> creative writing teachers can get jobs in universities mm. because it's bums on seats, the students mm. want it and it brings in money. Mm. On the other hand, creative writing teachers get treated really mm. badly. Mm. I mean, obviously you need to be mm. tactful about this, but mm. has that been your experience or observation? Um, I'm not sure that it's actually bringing in those, all those bums on seats at the moment, actually. The oh, university sector's uh, <laughs> not, not particularly healthy. Um, Look, I think it was the case that, um, you know, when I started teaching creative writing years ago, um, it was a case where, you know, you just do whatever you do because, you, you know, your, you know, your area is the cash cow for, um, for the rest of the, the university. Yeah. Now I think that um, pendulum, unfortunately, is swinging 
Um, so you got a certain respect, um, even if no one kind of really cared what you were doing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think now this pendulum's um, moving a bit more towards super vocational writing. Yeah. So, so creative writing isn't actually seen as that, you know, particularly sexy uh, sort of um, thing that it was within the, the university. So you're not allowed to call courses, you know, things like novel writing, you know, it's sort of like writing, <laughs> right? Um, oh, the but look, uh, the students remain, um, you know, while the universities sort of, you know, <laughs> arrive in their own sort of, you know, possibly end days, um, mm. you know, the university, the, the students remain um, so wonderful. Um, yeah. I always love teaching and what I teach at the moment is creative non-fiction. Yeah, good. And so... Um, to see, to and that is such a such a broad church at the moment, and so uh, diverse in form, and still exciting. And students can still get creative. You know, like nonfiction is 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 you know quite hot. There's a lot of publication places for it. So so you know, my, my students are published a lot. But to see students find a form for um, you know a particular ex experience, to find a form for. Um, you know, expatriate homesickness or for um, feelings that it's really hard for them to put a, a finger on and to, to find and to be able to use, um, especially with the essay, all the 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 the, the lashings of different approaches that it's possible yeah. to take is 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 you know, it's a great excitement of yeah. my job. No, that's that's fabulous. I am... Um some of you may not be aware, um, Daria's name appeared very suddenly and in big letters um, on the Australian Lit Landscape when she won two, not one, but two major prizes for the same essay. I don't think... You, you did little or nothing published in the way of uh, writing before that, if I remember. It was one essay yes. and one story. Yeah. Um, so it was the, yeah, the, it was the HQ um, short story competition right. and um, the Island Essay Competition. Yeah. Um, which was uh, which was announced here, and oh, everything right. started for me here yeah. in 1994. When um, you know, I was sent an airfare to to come down for that prize uh, prize giving, and my partner and I cashed it in for a train fare, and we both came <laughs> down. And uh, I met my agent and um, uh, my my past agent, and um, her father, John Bryson, who just passed away, had been one of the one of the judges and, uh, you know, was a, a very kind presence um, from from that point on. And, it, you know, so I have this memory of, you know, going to the, to the lunch at Jolly's Boathouse and, um, and, 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 you know, sort of um, Frank Mulhouse was one of the other judges and giving the um, announcement and sort of realising how late it was and running, <laughs> running up here to the tents to, uh, um, you know, for it all to start, it's really. All so I always, it always comes back to me when I, I, I think I, I think here. I was here. I think I remember. <laughs> that I've completely forgotten about it. Um, the thing is, of course, that back then, in the 19, especially in the early 1990s, um, people were agents and publishers and people on the whole were running a mile from um, non-fiction in general and specifically mm. the essay. Mm. You know, if you wanted to upset mm -hmm. the publisher, all you had to do was say yeah. the word essay. Yeah. That was enough, you know. Yeah. So um, at a time when it was not hot mm. or fashionable mm -mm. at all, mm -mm. the essay was the form mm. that sort of got you mm. got you underway. Mm. And I'm wondering whether that's your still your go-to, is that your go-to genre or do you just not think about it like that? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't see... A huge, um, yeah. I don't see a huge divide between fiction and non-fiction. It's never kind of been there for me. It's about finding a form for an idea. Yes. Um, I guess um, I was actually having a talk with a writer about this yesterday, and we were trying to nut it out. And I don't think we got kind of got very far. But um, 
with both both writing fiction and creative nonfiction, my process is a bit different to the creative process that you and Charlotte were speaking about in your fantastic session yesterday of sort of putting things down and not kind of knowing where you're going to go and then sort of, um, you know, kind of moving things around and you're drafting and redrafting until you hear what Peter Carey calls the, the osteopaths click, <laughs> which I really like. For me, it's it, oh, it's like that, it's writing, it's like writing signs and wonders where I'll, he, I'll, I'll see a flash, I'll see the flash of something and then I'll pursue it. It's the essay form, you kind of know kind of what an essay is or what a, you know, so, so you have a, it's like the small piece, smaller piece of ivory, you know, to, to that, um, you know, that Jane Austen wanted to write on. You know, for me, creativity often comes out of knowing what the boundaries are. And, you know, with mm. essays, I find it's a, it's a less of a, it's less of a hard um, act to, it's still very hard, but uh, to pursue the bright, bright flash I know it's there. I've heard a couple of words. I've seen the. I've sort of see. I've, I've felt it as a kind of a, a, a shape or a feeling or a colour. It's kind yeah. of almost synesthetic. And then I'm pursuing. It's 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 a more knowable process than having to think about creating a world of characters and a and a fictional world. Um, but it's a similar. Mm. It's a similar thing. It's just um, that that fiction is. Um, I find more stressful and a more difficult um, genre to work in technically, but in terms of the ideas or the, yeah. the feeling um, or even the sort of things I want to do, um, I usually have a feeling that I want my writing to do some sort of work in the world, you know, that, yes. I, that I have. It has a job to do. Uh, so, yeah. and I guess maybe that comes out of academic training where you, you know, you think about um, how a project or research is going to be original in some way or, and you have to kind of think about that first and my training, mm. my, my intellectual training was first as, a, as an academic. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... <laughs> but it's, it's, a strange, it's a strange old process, you know, yeah, regardless. It is, yeah. The, and the, the thing about the essay form is that it's very elastic but it stops you from being chaotic. Yes. You know, there are, you, yes. you've actually got a container. It might be a stretchy plastic one but it's a container. Yes, yes it is. Um, whereas with fiction you're on your own, it yes. seems to me, almost. Yeah. Containment is good. It's, you know, it's 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 great to put, put limits and breaks on there. Mm. The worst thing about writing is when you get sucked down, sucked down the rabbit hole of... Uh, of things being entirely uncontained. It's yes. a horrible, horrible and, and feeling. Unimaginable. You also use the word diary in, I think, three mm -hmm. of these essays. They're kind of sub-headed diary. And um, one is about um, walking in the time of COVID. Um, and another, it's a really amazing piece um, called... Is it Terror from the Air? Yeah. The, uh, the Fire Diary. Delia was, of course virtually caught up in the mega fires of in New South Wales of 2019 and, and 2020. And the diary, that what struck me reading it was that the diary is a thing that, that conveys immediacy to the reader. You're inviting the reader into the experience as it's happening. Was that what you were thinking about? Yeah, look, I, um, I love reading diaries as well. Um, I love them as a form and I think it is because you don't know what's going to happen. Even if you do, you know, as a reader, you do know what happened. You do know that the fires eventually extinguished themselves um, in, in this instance. Um, it's, you know, I think often when we think about, especially about environmental things, we often, but, but about history in Australia generally, it's often the case of um, seeing it all as if it happened inevitably. 
And, you know, that's no. the Paul Carter, the historian, has written about that, almost as if it's happened on a stage. And once you do that, you kind of abnegate a certain sort of sense of responsibility because it's yeah. like it couldn't have happened any other way. And I think especially with, with, with this sort of, um, you know, with, with so many aspects in Australian history, but, you know, for my purposes, the, particularly um, around the ways in which we've been, um, you know, ignoring all the warning signs at our peril, yeah. uh, it's, it's really important to go, look... You know, we didn't. The path ahead um, was murky. It, it. You know, we. This is what it feels like to be in that uncertainty at the time, and it's. You know, it's bloody terrifying. So let's. You know. So and and I wanted to put that on record before the the. You know, before those histories were smoothed out, and oh. I think it's often in those tiny details, yeah. the tiny details that you remember of. You know, for me, just you know, sometimes just. You know, Sydney, my council decided to go ahead with its fireworks in the middle of, you know, conflagrations, um, you know, sort of most of the eastern seaboard at this point. And that was kind of, they do it a couple of weeks before Christmas. Um, and I wouldn't let my kids go down because of what they'd been breathing in, but also because I felt it was, you know... <laughs> It was not a good thing to be doing in the face of, you know, the live cremation of the of the state, and um, just again, just and it's, it's sort of kind of traumatic to, to to remember. But I wanted to again uh, remember the sensual detail, the, the the material detail of looking out the window and just seeing first the the light ash, which was like the um, almost like the underfeathers of a bird, you know, they have that that sort of that so, that soft grey layer underneath, mm. and then just seeing suddenly these carbonised leaves start to fall, and they're in the ho they were whole, and we were two hours drive from the nearest, you know, one and a half two hours drive from the nearest fire, so all around our reservoir and everything, and just looking at that and thinking that um, because you know because they they were being the, 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 of the megafires, megafires are, you know, they produce their own weather. I mean, you know, they're, they're amazing. They're, again, they're terrifying, but they're kind of wondrous at, at the same time. And they suck, they condense, and they do that because they, they pull um, condensation up in, into them. And then at a certain point, they even create their own lightning. But clearly what had happened was that these trees had been, these leaves had been instantly kind of cremated or carbonised and lifted up and, and you know, with the, you know at, and at speed, with the speed of those yeah. high winds, sort of dropped and deposited there in my, Extreme. you know, harbourside street uh, like by, the, by the water, like little instant fossils. I think, you, I think it's really important to, to um, try to capture that, that sort of detail because yeah. that's the feeling detail. Yeah, before it, before it all goes. Yeah, it's it's like um, the the importance of bearing witness. Yes, as you say, before it all gets yeah. smoothed over. Um, we've got ten minutes or so for some questions. Uh, if you want to ask a question, mm -hmm. the microphone's down the middle aisle here, about halfway back. I'm working here while people are getting their <laughs> thoughts together. Um, have we not? Is there anything that we've not talked about that you would like to? talk about or think about some more or say? Oh, that's, uh, that's <laughs> like the end of the job so, interview question, yeah, isn't is it? it? Do you have any questions? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I am... Um, well, I've got, you know, many left because I've always got many left and I, um, I'm wondering whether you would, on, on a, maybe on a lighter note to end with, mm. um, tell the story of the fluffy dinosaurs, which was probably oh, my favourite yeah. phrase in the entire mm. book. <laughs> Um, I was shocked by this story, oh, by look, the way. You know, um, I have to say, sort of bird bird paleontology was almost my undoing with this book. Um, you know, I've asked had to ask a lot of experts. Um, you know, sort of to to kind of read bits and pieces of this book. But um, 
Uh, birds, um, so in terms of the wonders, one of the wonders I was thinking about of these things that just kind of turn up all the time, uh, you, um, there's, there's an amazing image that came up on, on, you know, on one of my feeds one day of a little bit of a feather, a t bit of a tail, a feathery tail that turned up in a piece of amber. And it turns out the latest thinking is that dinosaurs... Um, that feathers are as old as dinosaurs, that they probably mm. co-evolved, possibly not for flight. And again, I love that because it messes up our idea of, grad, you know, our gradualist idea of evolution, you know. Yeah. And there was a kind of a conflict apparently, you know, in the um, sort of early sort of Victorian period where, um, you know, there were two schools of thought uh, and Darwin's school one, which was that, and that was the gradualist school that, that evolution takes place slowly and kind of progressively. Um, and then there were the other people who were arguing that actually it can, you know, it, it, it can happen in quite um, sudden sort of eruptive sort of ways. And I think we're sort of starting to come around to that sort of second idea a bit more. Even ev evolution can happen in, in, um, in sort of in bursts. And so yeah. um, I love that, 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 that you know, but, 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 but scientists can now study the melanosomes of, um, of these um, fossils to work out what colour fossils. So even Tyrannosaurus rex was, fu was fluffy. <laughs> and it sort of, again, it changes your... I think we feel like we own the... Even, you know, we kind of... We, we feel that we own history, we own the deep past in a way we... You know, yes, you know, we understand that dinosaurs were these, you know, um, you know cold creatures in paleo art, you know, always sort mm. of fighting each other to the death. And it's amazing if you start to think, well, what if they... You know, apparently their brains were geared... Um, you know, that um, birds are actually are theropods they're one they're the meat-eating um hollow bone dinosaurs and they were in their sort of you know a recognizably bird-like form from about you know 130 million i think it was something like 130 million years ago so birds were birds uh, recognizably birds while we were still little you know insect eating no uh, nocturnal shrews you know <laughs> <laughs> escaping the, 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 the um, you know, the Chicxulub um, uh, asteroid when it hit the Earth well, by yeah. hiding in crevices. Um, Maybe they <laughs> so didn't. I think that's my theory on why we find birds so fascinating and wonderful is yeah. because our, our shrew selves recognise that birds are much older yeah. <laughs> um, in their current form. But yeah, fluffy dinosaurs. And, yeah, you, you know, fluff so, so yeah, the, it's really changed the world of illustration of dinosaurs because you see these creatures, you know, sort of with like you know, fluff, you know, sort of stripy red mohawks and you know, <laughs> red stripes, like you know, beautiful racing stripes. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, maybe one more. I I think people are probably a bit sort of just <laughs> taking taking it in. So I do have um, a question. This is something we talked about in the green room just before we came out here. Um, because both Delia and I contributed to the the, the, the cities series mm. for New South Publishing, New South Publishing, and Delia wrote the book on Sydney. Um, and she said, "This is something she says of of her own book on mm. Sydney. Will it even make sense to write books about mm. place in a world when record breaking events mm. have become the new mm. reality?" Mm. Um, and you, you, you say later, with this after the fires, with the sense that all the aspects of this place that are most familiar to me are now provisional, I no longer trust them. Mm. You know, mm. do, do you think we've lost trust in our sense of a, our sense of place mm. now that it's it started to change so much? Um, look, it really rocks you, doesn't it? I mean, I think that um, you know everyone is just uh, so rocked by the the you know the the torrential sort of east coast. Uh, Sydney rain that we've had and um, you know we 
you know, our found, you know, we, we are creatures who, of, of story, we're creatures who, uh, you know, have sort of certain sort of, I suppose, sort of fundamental um, um, beliefs um, in things like seasons. Uh, yeah. You think of all our yeah. writing and, and, and poetry and so forth, you know, um, even things like, like, you know, sort of summer, winter, um, you know, when you start to see those sort of stable stable categories that have been stable for quite some time sort of shifting. They shift us because they shift our, our foundation of story. But um, I actually spoke about this a little bit last year because we all spoke... Um, of course, Karen, you wrote the wonderful book on Adelaide and uh, in the same series, and we were all talking about... Um, about those city books and um, <laughs> I was chastised on Twitter for um, just talking about uh, um, beauty and landscape in Sydney but um, <laughs> it's, it goes much deeper than that. Yeah. You didn't hear the part about, um, you know, <laughs> sort of environmental catastrophe and what I had to say. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's... I, having grown up in Sydney, spent, you know, most of my life there, there are certain things that you... that even I, as a catastrophist... Um, expect to be con continuous and, you know, I always thought, well, for many years there are certain things I would depend on in my city and that is the southerlies are going to come through every afternoon, um, the humidity, uh, you know, will come in at a certain time, it will disappear at a, you know, it'll you know, sort of disappear sort of just sort of after, you know, sort of towards the end of January. Um, there'll always be that salty umami sort of smell of the harbour um, and they're, they're the things that, you know, are fundamental to your sense of place. Mm. And the fires um, really shook me. The southerlies didn't come in. The you know the cool cha cool changes didn't come in. The moisture wasn't the moisture wasn't in the air, which was mm. now there's too much moisture <laughs> in the air. Um, but as these things, um, you know, as as the, you know, as things go off. Um, really off kilter. You know, we're in uncharted territory. We're in the territory now where you used to see the dragons on the on the map. Yes, you know. here be dragons, uh, exactly. It will. It also, you know, fundamentally affects us and how we are in the world and mm. how we can, you know, even feel our own sense of identity in, in place because, yeah. um, you know, it's so, it's so profound. We, I think we have some questions now. Um, yes. Yes, I'm just wondering... Delia, do you have hope or think that these floods, this rain, will affect people's thinking and realise that um, climate change is real? I mean, the, I've heard, I don't know how true it is, but the Pacific is 25 degrees mm. at the moment, so that's why all this rain is happening. Yes. So unless that temperature changes, when will the rain stop? Yeah, it's we're experiencing a marine... That's correct. We're experiencing a marine heat wave um, all down the east coast of Australia, uh, and so yes, the water is much much warmer. Um, I mean, you know, again, these are fund profound thing changes that um, um, you know, burning fossil fuels and heating the atmosphere are creating. So, you know, the Gulf Stream is about has has moved about ten percent off its usual path, and that mm. affects the bigger sort of bigger weather weather patterns as well. I mean, you would hope so. Um, you would hope so. There hasn't been, again, in the in the reportage in uh, New South Wales, I've been, which I've been constantly glued to, doom scrolling, there hasn't been a lot of um, mention of 
climate change. And um, Tom Griffiths, um, again, an environmental historian, has something very interesting to say about that. And he says that it's a particular folly in Australia that part of our kind of um, hour, um, uh, that part of the sort of the, the, the violence of colonial settlement, in a way, was um, starting to pride ourselves on being able to um, live with the extremes of a very volatile country. Yeah. And so we have a particular blind spot here in Australia to being able to acknowledge, um, you know, acknowledge climate change and, um, uh, you know, sort of addiction to fossil fuels um, also because of our weddedness to, um, uh, to, to coal from the, from the very beginning yeah. as well. Yeah. So it's, there's, they're really sort of big shifts. I, you know, I really hope so um, because, you know, it's, it's, you know, my hope is for... I mean, it is hard to know what to, to sort of hope for because we are already locked into a certain level of, of heating at this stage anyway and as a mother of 10-year-old children, I think about that. Um, constantly, but you know, my yeah. hope is that yes, you you would hope every, but you know, I hope that around the fires as well. Yeah. Uh, that um, you know there will be a reckoning um, that it will come onto the agenda for the federal election. Um, you know, but we're not seeing many signs. Um, that's why I think why the independents. So there's a lot of movement in New South Wales um, at the moment behind independents. I can't speak for other, you know, for other states. I don't follow it as as closely. But partly because they are bringing because this enormous frustration yeah. that um, you know we are not um, you know that that um, uh, you know that we're not seeing labor um, committing um, as much as we would you know perhaps we you know we wish I would wish um, to um, to decarbonisation has to be quite radical at this stage. We yeah. really need to, yeah. you know, be, be moving... Uh, by 2050, you would have to um, really radically decarbonise to be kind of all right. We've got time for just one more quick question, I think. Um, what you said about we need to do something radical, do you think that the catastrophes of fire and flood mm. now will distract us again mm. by just trying to patch things mm. up? Mm. It'll be OK. We can just patch mm. things up. Mm. How... I want to feel hopeful, but I know. shall we? Uh, and that's the danger. And that's, I guess, where, um, you know, even conversationally, I think we all need to kind of try and turn that conversation around because that um, that that drive to say, hey, we're all together, and, and you know, they're, they're good things. They're, they're you know, they, they are community, um, you know, getting together, doing things for, you know, to, to sort of try and, and salvage... Um, uh, you know, other people's homes and so forth. All, all of those things are great things, but the, the, there is a risk that we kind of go down that, uh, you know, that, that sort of rabbit hole and we don't, um, you know, think about the, 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 bigger, the bigger picture. Mm. We're still reactive when we should, should have started being proactive mm. a, a very long time ago. Mm. Delia, thank you so much oh, for you. that and for the book, which is lovely. Thank Th thanks. Yeah, just join me in thanking Delia for a great session. Thank you.